Hi, hi, film aficionados, and thank you from someplace in our hearts, perhaps the bottom, for downloading the 56th dose of Scoring at the Movies. We review sports flicks, and we completely spoil sports flicks. I'm the diminutive hothead who was loved, then hated, then just a punchline, Ryan Ellis. And here's the soft four who blew it at the Olympics because he didn't bring a bag full of backup laces, Lord Chris DiGregorio. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. And if there is one word to describe me in these quarantine days, I think it would be soft, that's for sure. <laughs> I do want you to know, before we get into the recording here today, that whatever happens, it's not my fault. Just always remember that. It's not my fault. Funny you say that because I like to have alternate titles. If I can find one internationally that's fun, I'll do that. But I wrote instead of I, Tanya, when I do the whole release and all that stuff, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. <laughs> so the same theme got into our heads, didn't it? Obviously it did. It's hard not to when you watch this thing. I think that line might have been said by her character at least 25, 30 times throughout the movie. It was my fault, but kind of wasn't. Didn't she say that at one point? But the laces, I think. How do you not bring a whole load of laces to this kind of thing? At least one other pair. Do you remember that moment from 94? It happened in reality. I watched some of the video from it. And they show her putting her leg up on top of the boards of the ice rink and begging the judge to give her another chance. And she skates off. And then they fix the laces. I think a camera actually shows her backstage, I guess, getting different laces. Or somehow they fixed them well enough. And she went back out and skated and finished eighth. There's a Seinfeld episode where... They go to see, I think it's a play, and Jerry's girlfriend is the understudy that gets the role for the evening because of the softball game injury to Bette Midler. I was going to do the voice, and then I realized, okay, that probably doesn't play as politically correct anymore the way they do it in the show. It's the Korean hairstylist that I was talking about, Bette Midler and that, right? But isn't it the understudy character that comes out on stage, starts doing the song, and then stops and starts crying, and he's like, my shoelace is untied, my shoelace is untied, can I start over, can I do it again? And looks like her too, as I <laughs> yeah. recall, looks a lot like Tanya Harding. The events of the movie and that Seinfeld episode, roughly concurrently, would have been when I was like 12, 13 years old. At the time, I made no connection, but when I watched this movie and I saw that moment, oh yeah, <laughs> wait a minute. And then all of a sudden, I had this big light bulb moment that should have occurred to me 25 years ago, and I was unduly proud of myself, I have to say. Right. Tell us what you're drinking. It is not beer. No, I'm switching it up for this one. This movie demanded something a little bit more rough and ready than my easy drinking summer lagers, so I went with the whiskey today. I told you I would join you on the whiskey train someday, and you know me. I've certainly got my options around here when it comes to scotch, so... I'm going with the Glen Going 12-year-old today. Nice, nice. space-side, easy-drinking scotch whiskey. Beauty. And you don't drink with a mix like I do, so I've got CC and diet, but you're not mixing anything. Only a madman or a heathen would mix a nice single malt scotch like that, Ryan. So this was your first time ever seeing I, Tanya, correct? Now, I yeah. will say my thoughts on it right now before you do. Love this movie. It was in my top five that year, 2017. So it was released December 2017. Small budget. Grossed quite a bit of money considering the small budget. Triple the budget and five times that worldwide. So basically successful with a hell of a good star in the lead role. 
And Bev and I saw it together. I love this movie so much. Bev and I watched it again together to prepare for this. We loved it all over again. But this was your first time seeing it, I believe, right? What are your thoughts? Okay, so it wouldn't... <laughs> this doesn't sound good. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be me if I just had a straight-up answer for that, right? This movie came out, what, 2017, was it? The release date? Yeah. 2018? 2017. Well, why 2018? So there's, I think, four roles in this movie that I liked to loved performance-wise. Margot Robbie is very good. Outstanding. I preferred Sebastian Stan, Allison, Jenny, and the actor that played Sean Eckhart, whose name I can't recall. Paul Walter Hauser, yeah. who is perfect casting when they show the real people at the end. I actually looked during the movie just to show Bev, because I knew he was close. I thought, oh my God, is he ever close? He's outstanding casting. And he was in an Olympics movie last year where he played Richard Jewell, the guy who foiled the bombing in Atlanta in 96. He played Richard Jewell, the security guard who foiled that bombing. Yeah, his goofy performance as Sean Eckhart, I thought, stole the movie. And like I said... He's very funny. Sebastian Stan and Allison Janney, I thought, were both fantastic as well. Margot Robbie was very good. I just thought that it's almost the same way I feel about actors like Denzel Washington. They have a good performance. But in my mind's eye, you're on this tier of performance. So unless you blow me away compared to some of those other performances in this movie. Like, for instance, Janney's character... What's the mother's name? Lenova? Lavana. L-A-V-O-N-A. Bizarre name. Or at least an unusual Real name, though. These, of course, are real people, and that's a real name, yeah. But her performance is so big. And apparently, Tanya Harding's mother is really like this. It's so big and overwhelming, just like the Sean Eckhart character is so out there and so goofy, that by comparison, Tanya Harding in this movie seems a little pale and blasé, you know what I mean? Which isn't to say that anything wrong with Margot Robbie's performance. It was very good. It was just, I thought, overshadowed by those other three. Did you want to maybe hate her or hate the movie because you hate the real-life incident? That is another thing for me. So, honestly, there's something about the whole Tanya Harding saga and incident that I just cannot bring myself to care about at all. So by the end of it all, I was just like, all right, that was a movie. It was well-acted, and I thought the scripting was good. The sport was shot well. But at the end of it, I was just like, eh, I didn't care about any of these people. It was almost like they wanted to be a goofy caper movie because that's kind of what it was yeah. in real life. It's very funny the whole way through. It's almost a comedy. Yeah. It's a biopic comedy, effectively. Yeah, I think they describe it as a tongue-in-cheek look at the events, which it very much is. That just sours the movie-watching experience for me. Not the movie itself, because I don't want to rag on the construction No, I get what you're saying. I thought I would hate the OJ documentary that won the Oscar a couple years ago, and I refused to watch it until it got nominated. And I thought, well, i got to see it now. OJ made in America. Plus, it was free at the time, so as you've heard me say many times, I'll watch something <laughs> if it's free a lot more than if I have to pay for it. And then I was blown away by how good that documentary was, but I hated that time, and that's around the same time as this story. And I didn't like this story either because I didn't really follow the Olympics that closely, but when I heard about this, it just seemed so tawdry and stupid, and she seemed like a villain. And the movie does not excuse her at all. I wouldn't say the movie necessarily judges her, but in some ways it does. It doesn't let her off the hook. You talked about how she's always saying, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. Nothing's ever your fault. And yes, she was abused. The movie portrays that she was beat on by her mother at least once or twice. Emotionally abused, certainly, by her mother. Definitely emotionally abused, yeah, right. And then, of course, by Jeff Galuli. Sebastian Stan plays him so well, like he said. He denies he hit her in the movie, of course, but let's just say he really did deny that because I'm sure he would have. But she says he did. Casually, he hits her repeatedly. She tries to shotgun him at one point, so she does get some revenge. It's a very passionate movie, too. You see them fucking more than once. But she's also her own worst enemy. They don't help, her mother and her husband, but she's her own worst enemy. Now, you said you didn't like somebody else in the movie. What was it you didn't like as far as the cast goes? Is that what you meant to say, the other thing you didn't like? Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that there were any bad performances. I don't think there were. 
I just thought those four lead performances stood out and Margot Robbie much to my shock. I think you and I are both on the same page when it comes to her, that we view her as an incredibly talented actress who just has all kinds of charisma on screen, typically. But I think this is one of those circumstances where that level of charisma was almost intentionally held back, right? Because that's supposed to be part of Tanya Harding's issue as a wannabe figure skater. She's not a polished socialite, well-to-do figure skater growing up. So she's supposed to be rough around the edges, not particularly likable necessarily inherently. So a lot of what I think shines on the screen for Margot Robbie in a lot of her performances was probably intentionally shaved away from her in this one, just by virtue of Tanya Harding's nature as a character. And because of that, it allowed those other performances to be a little bit bigger, a little bit more out there and a little bit more entertaining, I thought anyway. And you're absolutely right about the actor, was it Hauser is his last name, that played Sean Eckhart? Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, I'll never remember that. I don't know. I've just got a mental block about this guy. Just call him Sean then. I'll call him Sean. They talk about him being interviewed by Diane Sawyer at one point. And I went and watched that interview with Diane Sawyer. It cracked me up more than anything in this movie, watching those two things side by side, because the performance that Sean guy puts on in the movie is so spot on, so spectacular. The mannerisms, the look, everything is just incredible this guy has got to be some sort of goofy character written for a comedy but then you watch the real life interviews and you're like no those mannerisms are true to life the things he says are true to life this guy really is a 300 pound 20 something year old nobody from the middle of the u.s that wants to tell everyone he's a counter espionage international counter espionage Mm. specialist and then brags to everybody that they tried to take out nancy kerrigan with a lead pipe it's bad enough that it was such a dumb caper i'll get to the nutshell in a second so it's bad enough that they did that at all, but then to brag about it, you're a moron. So here's the nutshell, because it fits into the lead pipe thing, the most famous part of this whole story, unless maybe the Olympics themselves, the lace and the Nancy Kerrigan getting silver and everything. But anyway, the nutshell for I, Tanya. Dumbass rednecks hire even dumber goons to cripple talented opponent, but they go after the wrong talented opponent. They should have been going after Oksana Bayul, who won the gold medal. She was, I think, 16 at the time. They're all young, but she was extremely young. I'd never even heard her name. We all had her Nancy Kerrigan. And Tanya Harding and Katarina Witt, who had won gold medals before this, going into these Olympics. So everyone thought maybe they wouldn't be one, two, three, but they were all on the hunt for it. And maybe skating people knew about Oksana Bayul. And I watched some of this when it happened, I think. But I didn't know who that was. And when it is said in this movie by Margot Robbie playing Tanya Harding, saying, the look on her face when she won the silver medal. I watched the clip. She's not wrong. Nancy Kerrigan is a very sore silver medalist. She does not want to settle for silver. And I don't remember specifically, but Bayou probably just skated better than her because they obviously would have loved the story to be that this girl was crippled. Why, why, why? Even when I saw that at 16 years old, I remember thinking I'm more mean now than I was then. (laughs) Hey, I didn't take the pipe to the back of the knee. It probably hurt. But it sounded so self-righteous. How could you do this to me, Nancy? I was even younger than you were, obviously, but... That's my recollection of everything around that event in that era was A, the news outlets, and was it CBS that was carrying the Olympics that year? They were desperate for that Cinderella story where she would Mm -hmm. come through and win the gold. And like you said, they would have just loved it if that came true when it was all said and done. I recall there was doubt that she would even be able to skate. The injury would be rehabilitated in time for that to be realistic. So that would have just been the final storybook ending to it all. You would think silver would be... A pretty good storybook ending, but yes, if we've learned anything from watching Talladega Nights, Ryan, it's if you ain't first, you're last. So you may <laughs> as well look like you just stepped in a pile of shit, as Tanya Harding says. So I take it you were a vithead going into the Olympics that year, though. Just 
really rooting for Katarina Vitt. <laughs> I didn't remember her name until it came up in the movie. I thought, oh, yeah, right, her. So I knew of her, but not really a vid head exactly. I didn't really watch the Olympics regularly. And by the way, I just said I was 16. I was 20. I was way <laughs> off of my numbers there. 20 years old in 94. Speaking of numbers, might as well keep up with that right now. So the critics, this movie was beloved on Rotten Tomatoes. 90% of the critics like this film. 9-0 wow. for an average of 7.7 7 out of 10 and 88% of audiences. It was 83rd at the 2017 U.S. box office. Star Wars The Last Jedi. Go ahead. Say something bad. I don't need to say anything bad about Star Wars The Last Jedi. Everyone knows how bad that movie is. Okay, fair enough. That was number one. Get Out, which Bev and I covered quite a few years ago, was number 15. That's a very good film. And The Shape of Water, the best picture winner, which we're not big fans of, Bev and I, we covered that one too, was number 46. And of course, we talked about how good Allison Janney was. Well, she won the Oscar. She won all the big awards going into that show, so no surprise when she won the Oscar. Good competition that year, but she was the right choice. And I'll probably post this on the upload her Oscar win, the first thing she says is, I did it all myself. <laughs> Bev and I lost it. The funniest thing anyone's ever said the Oscars, maybe. Certainly one of the funniest things anyone's ever said. Then she does the whole sort of, oh, that can't be further from the truth. Everyone help me and all these people. Help. I wish she'd just said that and then big smile on her face when you know she's just tongue-in-cheek and then walked off. That would have been the best speech ever if she'd just done that. And Margot Robbie was nominated for Best Actress. Could have won, maybe. I don't know about should have, but could have won. And it was nominated for the editing. You know what did win that year? Bev and I just last week covered Inception, and we got talking about Dunkirk in that episode. Yeah. That won the editing Oscar in 2017, which we didn't agree with because we don't know what the hell's going on in that film. I think this movie should have won the editing Oscar because I think even though it's an ordinary kind of dramedy-type film, those don't usually win Oscars, it is extremely well edited. I know that's not really your field, but the way they go back and forth with the stories, the way you always know where you are, comedy and horror about timing more than any other genres, and this movie is a comedy, and the editing is outstanding. So it could have won all three of its nominations and maybe should have been nominated for more. Like you said, not my field, not one to comment on it, but it was something I actually wanted to ask you about, not even knowing it was nominated for that at the Oscars, because some of the aspects of the movie, after I finished watching it, initially I was just thinking that was a weird inclusion and it got me thinking a little bit about necessity and how things move along in terms of driving the story, but also keeping you engaged and keeping you up to speed on some of the elements of it that really make it what it is. Who is it? Bobby Cassav... Not Cassavale. Cannavale? Cannavale. Bobby Cannavale. It seems just over the last 10 years or so, he just pops up all over the place in not mm -hmm. big roles. He just does a good job with everything all the time. This is an example of that because he's just this reporter turned editor character for... Was the hard, hard copy? Hard copy, yeah. So, which, as he says, is what was shit on by everybody back then the real journalists, and then all journalism became hard copy. And he is not wrong, he's not wrong. And it's freaking sad the buzzfeedification and tabloidization of mainstream media news and all that kind of fun stuff. But initially, I thought, why is that character in here? Because he doesn't do much except pop up periodically and just give you a little insertion of little factoids here and there about what was going on at the time. If you take that out, you lose so much context for the characters. For instance, the goons that get hired to take out Nancy Kerrigan. God, that's a funny sequence. It wasn't funny in reality, I'm sure, but the way it's shot in this movie, it's very funny. But not just that, though. When you see the parking lot security cam footage of the car just moving around, moving around, and then him saying, to avoid suspicion, he moved his car every 15 <laughs> minutes for two days before he realized Nancy Kerrigan was training in another state. <laughs> 
<laughs> that kind of stuff. I was thinking, how else could you convey the utter idiocy of these guys? These little facts that just convey that reality without it seeming just ham-handed. This was the way that happens. He ends up being vital. He ends up being vital, and it didn't strike me immediately, but on thinking back, good for you, man. He disappeared into the movie, the flow of it, so well. And I'm sure the editing is a huge part of that, because if his scenes were overlong or they were interspersed incorrectly, then it doesn't work as well. Also, him piping up means it's an unbiased account because everyone else is slanted to their own favor. Jeff's going to tell the story the way he thinks is best for him. Tanya's going to tell the story the way it's best for her. Well, she's more honest than the other ones are, I think, but it's hard to really know. The on-screen Tanya, that is. LaVon is going to tell her own story. Sean certainly is. But what has Maddox got? That's Bobby Cannavale's character. What has he got to lose or win by not being honest? So right. the hard copy journalist is probably the most honest person in the whole film. The tabloid journalist guy that shit on by everybody else at the time, like you said, is now the objective observer that everyone's going to. You know, that sequence when they do take her out with the lead pipe, when the guy bashes the knee, I said they, but it's just the one guy who actually hits her, of course. The way it's filmed, I thought the one thing I would really criticize about this film, and maybe because the director, Craig Gillespie, is not Scorsese, or what's his name, Alfonso Cuaron could certainly do this, or Inuritu. You know what a wonder means? It means you shoot it in one. It's a oh, long, okay. usually steady cam kind of shot at this point. It might have been on a track long ago, but now it's usually a steady cam. If they had had that guy go in that ice rink and look for her, eventually hit her, jump through the window and get up to the car, if that whole thing had been shot in one shot, that would have been so much better than it was. It was still a good sequence, and it was still funny, even though you wouldn't think it was funny because it was a horrible thing they did to this poor girl. Why? Why? But it was overcut. I said the movie was well edited. Yeah. And maybe they just couldn't afford it. It's a low budget. And Craig Gillespie is not Scorsese. But that's the one thing I thought was missing. Actually, it's funny when I mentioned this guy's name, Craig Gillespie, because I looked up his credits. Some of his other movies, I hated one of them. The other one is bleh. The one I hated, Lars and the Real Girl. Really hate that movie. <laughs> Don't buy it. Ryan Gosling does the best he can with a stupid concept. But it's even worse, the people in the area, the friends, family, that buy into this blow-up doll as his girlfriend. Stupid. Hated that movie. And the Million Dollar Arm with John Hamm, who's a baseball fan. It's a baseball right. movie. One of those movies is terrible. The other one is okay. He also did The Finest Hours, which was pretty solid. But this movie, to me, maybe you don't like as much as me, stood out so much as an outstanding film. The other ones are, yeah. And then the writer, Stephen Rogers, so Captain America, he wrote Stepmom. Bleh. Big stars, but not a good movie. Kate and Leopold. Okay, fine. Most of his resume is rom-coms. And then this movie stands out so much. So it's funny you get these two people who are not all that impressive and then suddenly, bang, they make one of my favorite movies of the entire year. Lightning in a bottle, maybe. Who knows? By the way, the reality of this film is that a big part of this that you can't avoid sometimes when you cast stars, you're never going to get somebody who looks exactly like the actors, exactly perfect casting, because Margot Robbie probably isn't. She's Australian, for one thing, playing an American hick. But Margot Robbie is five inches taller than Tanya Harding. Harding is five foot one. I thought Robbie was actually even taller than that, but it says online she's five foot six, so she's five inches taller, which is almost half a foot. That's still a lot. And also, by the way, I should have said this before we even got going in the podcast or at the very top. We're covering an Olympics movie because it was on Netflix. So again, easy access. It is a good movie, as I've said three or four times already. But this is going to go up the day before the Olympics were to start this year. Now, this isn't a sport that would have been covered, of course. It's a Summer Olympics. But the Tokyo Games were supposed to start on July 24th, and this podcast goes up on July 23rd. We're not doing too badly that way. Release a baseball movie a few days after the announcement of the resumption of baseball. Put this one up just before the theoretical date of the Olympics anyway. Coach Carter during racial strife. There you go. See, we're really... Which hitting. I guess there's always racial strife, but... Yeah, well. It doesn't surprise me that Tanya Harding is quite short, right? Because I think a lot of figure skaters, much like gymnasts, 
gymnasts, gymnasts, I don't know why I hit the A so hard there, but they benefit from not being huge body types because they're doing a lot of jumping and a lot of in-air manipulation of their bodies. So being tall and lanky like I am would be a real detriment. But one thing I forgot about Tanya Harding, and I had to go back and look her up again, there's a line here during the early sequences of the movie with it when Harding is meant to be in that 11 or 12-year-old age range and she's skating and somebody says she looks like she was chopping wood all morning and her mother says she was. She was a jacked woman. She was yoked. She was big. And if you look at pictures of her, she's got muscular arms, shoulders, thighs. It doesn't surprise me that she was the one that was able to hit that triple axle. Was it axle that she hit? Axle. Because she has a leg strength that the rest of them maybe She's don't have. She's so bloody strong. And that was the one glaring physical discrepancy. Once I paused the movie, I went back. I looked for those pictures of Hardy just to refresh my memory about what she actually looked like. And then once I resumed the movie, seeing Margot Robbie, that was the one discrepancy. Margot Robbie got the facial stuff down pretty well and the style is obviously there. But she just doesn't have... The voice, the accent. Yeah, that was all pretty well done. But the physicality of the character wasn't the same as the actual Tanya Harding on the ice. Which is why it made so much sense when Tanya Harding briefly showed up as that stunt boxing career thing after she was banned from skating, because she was just already so strong. Well, she would have been MMA probably if it was now. Wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Well, she was banned for life in June 1994, so that same year as all the events in this movie. Not all the events, but the big events, the Olympics especially. For conspiracy to hinder prosecution. Forget the movie, because the movie leaves it up in the air smartly. Of what you know of this real-life incident, do you think that she knew about this? Sean and Jeff obviously were in on it. There's no doubt about that. They, in the movie and in reality, blamed each other as much as anything else. Do you think Tanya knew or even orchestrated this in reality? I don't know. I'm a natural cynic. So just on that basis alone, when something like this happens, my gut instinct is to say, yeah, this was the person effectively standing in Tanya Harding's way from making the Olympic team. If anyone's going to orchestrate, it's going to be her. But she did make the Olympic team. They both did. They both ultimately did, yeah. But the movie did a good job of illustrating that they were all very stupid. They're all uneducated. All dumbasses. Yeah, and the people actually undertaking this hit on Nancy Kerrigan weren't just uneducated. They were legitimately dumb. And so if you say to me, well, Harding and Galuli talked about and conspired somehow to say, okay, we're going to hinder Nancy Kerrigan, whether that's as this movie hypothesizes through fake death threats to throw her off mentally or whatever... Okay, I would actually buy that. You hear Sean Eckhart, real-life Sean Eckhart, speak, and you can understand that, yeah, this is a guy that absolutely, if you said to him, listen, we need to do this thing to Nancy Kerrigan, let's send her some letters, he might be the kind of guy that would get it into his head, I'm a super-secret spy wrangler, I'm going to put a hit out on her of some kind, and then these dumbasses in the northeastern U.S. might actually do something really stupid. So... I'm convinced she knew that something was going to happen to try to throw Nancy Kerrigan off her game, whether she thought it was actual physical attack or... Because I think at some point... Oh, this wasn't in the movie, I don't think, but it was in the interview with Diane Sawyer that Sean Eckhart said he thought originally it was going to be a kidnapping. They were going to grab her, tie her up, lock her in a hotel room for a day or two so that she either missed an event or that it messed with her head. They weren't going to hurt her, and then it changed, and... They were all in on something. What it turned out to be is what we know, what they intended it to be. Who the hell knows? The movie says that she knew about the death threat letters, which is bad enough. Yeah. 
And I don't know if that was ever actually part of the court case, but the movie shows that she knew that. So if you didn't know anything about this stuff in reality and just watched this movie, but knew it was a real story. But anyway, you would probably say, well, she's guilty of at least knowing they were going to do something, which is bad enough. And then it comes out that Sean sent the death threat letters to Tanya. Yeah. Which also plays in what we saw earlier in the film when her mother is paying off a guy to heckle her. That was a great And I got to ask too. you this question. This has come up a lot recently. <laughs> yes. Because Whiplash, Bev and I covered last year, I've talked about it so much. I love that movie. It's my favorite movie the whole past 10 years. And this is a classic example, one of the best ones in a while. It was only three years later. Is the person who motivates you negatively. And maybe this is a better example. No, that's not true. In Whiplash, he is motivated. It does work. It may be a poison, but it works on Andrew in Whiplash as a drummer. And it seems to work on Tanya as a skater, having this awful mother who treats her badly. I'm not talking about the physical abuse, just the way that she pays off that dude, for example, to heckle her. The movie shows that that worked. And that goes back to what I said with Bev on that podcast about Whiplash, that I'm not going to judge this because I think it's possible. And some people need to be pushed in a negative way. It may be shitty. And anyone hearing this right now can say, what is wrong with you? Well, I don't know. I'm not her. Nancy Kerrigan probably needed to be treated like a queen by her friends and family and coaches and all that. And Tanya, the way the movie portrays it, and maybe this is true, needed to be ridden harder. And also, would she really have the same coach for 12 or 13 years? Because she gets the coach when she's not even quite four years old. She's a soft four. And then she still has her when she's 16, Diane. I assume those elements of the story were true to life because there's no reason to not make sure that that's at least accurate. So I guess it's possible. Tanya Harding's mother would not respond to the filmmakers, so they never got her direct input into any of this movie. So I think as what I saw of Allison Janney, she said it was like an amalgam of input she got from Tanya, from things that Jeff said, from things she heard from other people that knew Mrs. Harding and put her own spin on all of that. But by the point when adult Tanya is now competing and her mother pays off this guy to heckle her in the stands, that was at a point in their portrayed relationship in the movie, they had broken down. They were yeah. lower than they had ever been. And right from the get-go, her mother is emotionally abusive, turned physically abusive as she gets older, certainly. I think at one point, Jenny says, in the modern-day older version of Mrs. Harding, she says, I only hit her with that brush once. And then it cuts to her wailing on the kid with a hairbrush. And then, of course, subsequently to that, and throughout the movie, we see all the kinds of other physical abuses taking place, including her throwing a knife at Tanya. Whether or not that actually happened, I don't know, but right. it's an interesting touch. But the way I took that is that at that point, her mother was just doing this out of spite, that she wasn't trying to motivate her daughter anymore. It was just, well, Tanya, I spent every dime I made waitressing growing up, teaching you how to skate, paying for your lessons, and you don't show me any respect or any gratitude, and we understand why she doesn't get that respect. But then Tanya breaks off this relationship, moves in with Jeff, cuts her mother off effectively. So this is her mother saying, okay, well, screw you. I'm going to fuck with you the way that you screwed up my life. It wasn't just a motivational tactic. It was her trying to stick it to her daughter because she's just that spiteful. Well, she is a bad mother, clearly. And it says she has five kids as well. So she's with multiple dads as well, I think, too. I think the movie might be saying, though, that this girl, because she's still a girl at that point, she can be motivated by harsh tactics. Yeah, I think we talked about similar things in other movies where you see that kind of negativity as a training tactic. And I don't disagree with you. I think for some people it can be motivating. I think the question arises, you might achieve the goal, but then what's the collateral damage to that? What does that do to Tanya Harding over her lifetime mentally and emotionally that her mother went to those lengths to drive her? I think we see it in this film. Yeah, so that's ultimately the question, and I think that's the question whenever we see it portrayed in film. It's not whether or not it's an appropriate motivational tactic necessarily. It's 
is it worth it ultimately? Is the cost warranted? I'd be one thing if her coach was doing this to her, like the teacher in Whiplash. It's not a family member. So Andrew and Whiplash can always go back to his family if he decides he doesn't want to be pushed this way because he's still a young man, but he's not a student anymore in that film. It's a person he can get rid of. But how do you get rid of your own mother? Well, she does. But theoretically, how do you get rid of your own family from your life when that's the person that's riding you this hard? And it's funny, too, because I think you got into this a few minutes ago. Kind of like Coach Carter and definitely like Moneyball, which isn't obviously about this. It's more about money. But this movie is about class. <laughs> Wait, you say Moneyball is about money? That is the greatest summation huh. of that movie I've ever heard. <laughs> nutshell. Many weeks later, I nutshell Moneyball. It's about money. But anyway, I'm just saying the movie's not really about class per se, but Oakland is a low-class team compared to the Yankees, for example, as we mm -hmm. hear about so often. Their clubhouse is small. They can't afford to just have Coke and Pepsi, whatever the brand is, be on tap for these guys the way the richer teams can. So that movie is about class. Coach Carter was to a degree, too. Yeah, this much. one clearly is. And skating is a rich person's sport. Skiing is. Hockey, for the most part, is because it costs money to do this stuff. You can't just grab a ball and play soccer or basketball or even baseball. You can play baseball with very little money, basically, anyway. Speaking of which, by the way, a bit of a sidebar of my own sidebar, Tim Kirchin on ESPN, through all the baseball stoppage, every day had a why I love baseball kind of thing. And at one point, it was about baseball players' gloves and their obsession with them. Troy Tulowitzki, who played here for many years, is a great example of this. Their gloves were awful looking yeah. and you'd think how could anybody field with that but baseball players are so territorial about their gloves and the reason i bring that up is because in this movie we see the skates when the laces are broken in the big event at lillehammer the olympics in 94 apparently in the movie i think this is true but in reality it's not she has new skates you don't wear new skates in a big competition you wear the ones you've worn over and over and over yeah you look better if you have nice skates on the olympic stage for the whole world to see you but Troy Tulowitzki in the baseball playoffs, the years the Jays made it, didn't have a brand new glove in the playoffs, so he looked better. He had that tattered, terrible-looking thing because he wants to use something he's used to and has broken in. And that's an important part of this, and that's one of the reasons why her laces broke, I guess, because they weren't brand new. It wasn't like she just put on some skates that she'd rarely or never worn before. Had she done that, they wouldn't have fit her feet as well. She wouldn't have felt as comfortable, but maybe the lace wouldn't have broke, and maybe that wouldn't have thrown her out for a game. I think your point is right. You don't suddenly put on equipment that you're not familiar with, that doesn't feel the same as what you're used to in the biggest moment of your life, of course. Your point about class is absolutely on point. And it's explicitly said, not just implied throughout the movie, but explicitly said a couple of times. Like, I think one of the first lines in the movie is Margot Robbie saying, I'm a redneck and I'm proud of it. At one point, she skates over to the judge's bench when she gets a score she felt was too low and, and says, what the hell do I have to do? sweetheart it's not just about the skating and she's like oh, give me five thousand dollars and i'll go buy an outfit i won't have to sew my own and then later on prior to the olympic qualifier she approaches the judge in his car and he just says if asked i'll deny it but you're not exactly the face we want representing our country at the olympics right but isn't it about the skating it's a very reasonable question to ask the guy yeah. But I love what she says to those judges when it's all of them and she's still skating. Something that apparently Tanya Harding wishes she'd said, because they obviously wrote it for the movie then if she feels that way. Margot Robbie's version says, suck my dick. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Which great. really fits this character. It really does. And just because you mentioned the class thing, I got to mention this, because it's one of the things that colored my watching of this movie. It's a little unfortunate, maybe, because aside from my feelings about this incident generally and sort of apathy towards all of this and figure skating generally... Obviously, we're going through a lot of things right now in the world. What this movie did, both in terms of the explicitness of I'm a redneck and proud of it, and all the characters are all just of the same background. Aside from their education levels, 
usually pretty stupid. And all I could think of, rightly or wrongly, is the insanity of what's going on in the States and that these are exactly the kind of people that really breed a lot of this insanity. The kind of people that will go to a Walmart with a rifle and say, I dare you to make me put a mask on. They can't see past their own selfishness to say, well, even if it's not going to help everything, it doesn't hurt me and it might help everyone. Why wouldn't I do it? Or the kind of people that say, well, 5G bandwidth for my phone is somehow transmitting the disease. All of these things <laughs> were going through my mind when I was watching these kinds of middle American rednecks portrayed on screen. I just couldn't separate the two things. So it kind of soured me a little bit on my enjoyment of it from that perspective, which is a little bit of a bummer, I think. But it might be one of the reasons why I'll have to go back and rewatch this movie probably in a year or two time when hopefully we're past where we are right now, just to see if I enjoy the experience a little bit more because of it. It's almost unfortunate this podcast is a podcast and not a visual sometimes. And the last two minutes are a good example of that because all this man just said, I nodded through a ton of it because I agree with so much of that. Although I could see past it because I think the movie was so good. It really helps. It's funny. Yeah. And you've got such good actors. The other great visual that no one has seen, and I'll just mention it now, is behind this man on his Zoom thing here is a picture of a person that went right through a wall of the skating rink, bashed right through it, would have undoubtedly died if they had. It's got to be a visual effect, but it's hilarious. And as soon as he started the call, I laughed. The first thing I did was start laughing because it's so damn funny. Your first comment was, how did she not die? Yes, <laughs> the very first thing I said. I didn't even say hello. And as for what you just said about the class things, the way people are being obstinate pricks, I'm not wearing a mask because and making it a class war, making a right versus left thing. I didn't really think of that during this movie, but if you did, I don't blame you for having a problem with it because if I had been thinking that way through this movie like you did, I might have some of the same points you're making now, which is really well made, great actors, but I hate these people. I didn't hate these people the way you did, but that's a hell of a good point. If it wasn't this moment in time and it wasn't already front of my mind, I wouldn't have made that connection. But the other thing it brought to mind for me is this movie, as much as anything else, is a reason why we as a society, we're Canadian, and this movie takes place in the States, but I think just in North America society generally. But it's skating, so we can really relate to it. There is that. But why we should really be investigating whether or not something like a universal basic income or something is something worth looking into. Yep. Both countries have instituted something like that on an emergency basis during the coronavirus crisis. But just think about what it would have meant for Tanya Harding's mother or Tanya Harding herself to have had a little bit of extra income cushion to really pursue her sport and become the best she could be. And this applies to anybody in her circumstance that might want to pursue, maybe they're the next Ernest Hemingway, but they have to work at a hardware store like she does. Like she says in this movie, I work at a hardware store, I do welding, I do all some manual labor, and then I go skate for six hours. I can't remember what it was that happened when she moved in with Jeff, but now I can go just skate full time. This is extremely a good point. You're making a great point here. Oksana Bayul and Nancy Kerrigan, I don't know what happened with them or the men's skaters or any of the skaters before these people, the ones that came after. But I guarantee you that most of the ones that really succeeded in a sport like this that is about money and is about class did not do what Tonya Harding had to do to survive. You're making a great point. I know it's very political, and I didn't expect you to bring this up, but that's true. Tonya Harding could to. just basically get by. <laughs> <laughs> if she could just basically get by in life and didn't have to work an eight-hour-a-day job, or maybe more, but at least eight hours a day, and then still do the skating work, Kerrigan probably was just doing the skating work. 
And who knows where she could have gone because she did land the triple axel. No woman had ever done it. Bev and I both love the moment, and Margot Robbie captures this perfectly when she lands the triple axel the first time at the Nationals or Skate America or something. Because Tanya won things like that. She never won at the Olympics, obviously, at Albertville in 92 or Lillehammer in 94. But she won various events in her country. Right. And the triple axel would have been part of that. She was a very good technical skater, not so much in the sense of grace, the way that Kerrigan and Bayul and some other people had, but very good technically. But when she lands that triple axel, she does this little double fist pump thing, pulling her arms into her body, kind of fist pump type deal. Remind me a little bit of Brad Pitt and Moneyball when Hatterberg hits the winning home run in the 20-game win streak. It's one of the best moments Margot Robbie has in the whole film is that little recreation. But the best moment she has in the whole film... When she is putting the blush in her face and she's trying to do all that. And it looks tacky because she's got too much on her face. I don't think blush necessarily looks great on women a lot of times anyway. And then she starts to cry. But she's also trying to smile through the tears. We all raved about Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker last year. And he was outstanding and should have won the Oscar. He has that moment where he turns his mouth upside down when he has to have the smile. But then he makes it into a frown and all that. I think he's crying when he's putting his makeup on at one point. He puts the paintbrush in his tongue. All those moments are great. Robbie does some of the same things two years earlier, as good if not better. That moment when she does that with the blush and starts crying is this movie and this character in a nutshell, to a T. If you had to make this movie into a short, it would be 10 seconds and that's it. That is Tanya Harding in a nutshell, at least in this movie, if not the real person. I think that's a really good point. If that was her performance throughout the movie, that level of expressiveness, and it can't be because it wouldn't be true to the actual person if it was, but if that was it, then I wouldn't be talking about the other three as having more interesting performances to me. It would be Margot Robbie all the way. You know what, though? She is probably too big as Harley Quinn. Not so much in Suicide Squad, where she's the best thing in it. I've got a t-shirt I wear on a pretty regular basis with her likeness on it. She's awesome in that film. So well cast. But in her movie that was out earlier this year before everything got shut down by the coronavirus, the Birds of Prey film, I did enjoy myself, but that character for two hours, it might be a little bit too much. So if she has that great moment with the blush and the tears in every moment of this two-hour film, it might be the same thing as Harley Quinn, which is, I love you, but in 10-minute doses, 5-minute doses, or even maybe 20-minute doses, but not two full hours of this. You couldn't go that emotional all the time. There's no question. You have to tone it down in order to have that difference of pathos throughout the movie or else it's going to be too much, right? She's the closest thing to the calm and the storm of the four main characters, too, even though she's also a bit of a maniac herself, probably in reality, certainly the way it's portrayed in the film. She's as close to a reliable narrator as we have. They all do straight-to-camera interviews, the four of them, more so the three main, the family, if you will, Lavana, Jeff, and Tanya. But when she's speaking, if I believe any of them, I guess I believe her the most. Lavana seems to be a straight shooter, but she's also the kind of person that thinks that she's telling the truth. She's convinced herself yes. that she's not a shitty person. I wouldn't say that she thinks she's a good person, but she's the kind of person that would say, well, I did all I could for my kids. Did she really put all of her money into Tanya skating? Not that she had to, but you're the mother. You had five kids, asshole. If you have to support your kids' endeavors and you know they're good at it and you want them to be good at it in some twisted way she does, then don't expect her to thank you for that repeatedly. That's your fucking job. You're the one who had sex with somebody without a condom on. Fuck you. <laughs> Although Alex and Danny is outstanding. Just erupted. Oh, whenever you hear that kind of thing from people in reality, movies, whatever, where's my thanks for being your parent? You're the fucking asshole who had me. I didn't choose to come into this world, dickhead. Raising me is the very least you can do. And then taking care of a passion I have, maybe I should expect that. But then you, when you want that for me and I've got a shot at being good at it, then you do sort of owe that to me. So fuck you. You're the family guy little sperm clinging to the interior of your father's nutsack. No, I don't want to go anywhere. No, you can't make me be born. Damn it. 
<laughs> but having said that, Allison Janney is great in this role. She only shot for eight days. It was a very fast shoot they did in Georgia. According to the IMDb, the whole thing was Georgia. They live in Portland, Oregon. And of course, the Olympics are supposed to be in Norway. And we see a little bit, I think, in France. And they're probably supposed to be in other parts of America through the whole film. But they shot it in Georgia. Huh. And of course, Janney, for the most part, has a bird on her shoulder. And in the one image you see of Lavana at the end, the real person, she has a bird on her shoulder. And I don't know that Allison Janney loved that bird because when she looks back at it, when it would peck at her or do this, do that, she seemed like she's legit annoyed, which works for the character, whether she was or what she wasn't. I think I read somewhere that Allison Janney didn't love that bird, but that really helps that character that she didn't. There's two moments in this movie that, actually maybe three, I specifically want to ask you about because I like them so much. First and foremost, only because we covered Rocky Four earlier for this podcast, and, of course, Rocky Four's famous training montage in the Russian mountains. That training montage in this movie where she actually cites, it worked for Rocky, and then goes running off with a bag of Purina on her back. And then the coach, Diane, says, she actually did this. And then yeah. later on, she actually did this. She says and that one of the ones. That was funny. Yeah. Now, credit to Julia Nicholson, who was just recently in The Outsider, that TV show that Bev and I watched. Oh, I think it was out was. earlier this year. She's the angry wife, Jason Bateman's wife in that and then she's also in black mass the one about whitey bulger mm-hmm. she's actually the most normal person in this film she's very low-key but she is funny in that moment she actually did this she actually did this and this too so your question was about rocky i wanted to know whether you enjoyed that sequence as much as oh, i of did of course how could you not that was great yeah <laughs> carrying dog food now <laughs> gonna skate now <laughs> Okay, let me ask you this. If you were conspiring to sabotage somebody, let's say you had a big softball tournament coming up and you wanted to play mind games with your opponents, and you said, all right, Chris, I know you live out of state, so I need you to mail a few letters to them to mess with their heads. And I said to you, I can mail you a few letters, all right, no problem, but I'm going to need $1,000 for expenses. What expenses? Several times (laughs) in this movie, Sebastian Stan, Jeff Galuli, says all it was was to mail a few letters yet he still gives sean eckhart a grand for quote-unquote expenses for his two best guys up in massachusetts or whatever they're meant to be what expenses can you imagine these guys have behind buying a few stamps and maybe a couple of magazines to cut some creepy letters out of two things one is hush money not that that's much hush money but maybe, maybe. he thinks that because he's dumb and the other thing is that maybe the movie is subtly saying that Sean, as much of a moron as he is, is actually outfoxing and outthinking Jeff. I think it is, actually. One of the things that crossed my mind is, okay, well, is this the movie subtly saying, they were just going to mail letters, wink, wink, why else do you send them so much money if they're just going to mail a few letters? But maybe you're right. Maybe it is Sean actually outsmarting somebody in Hicksburg, Washington State. I liked the moment when he asked Jeff for more money and Jeff turns to him and says, what do you think I am, an idiot? I'm like, you already gave him a grand to mail a few letters. Yes, you're an idiot. (laughs) If I was in Sean's shoes, I'd ask you for more money too. Keep tapping that well till it's dry. That whole sequence made me laugh and then confused me and had me sitting there scratching my chin. It was interestingly done because I wasn't sure whether it was played for comedy or played by the director to be an undercurrent of maybe it was more than just the letters. Yeah, yeah. My personality being what it actually is, if I were in circumstances similar to these characters, I could totally see myself doing this. The conversations that Jeff has with Tanya on the telephone in the Eckhart's basement just after Tanya leaves him, and it's, Mrs. Eckhart, can you call her back? Mrs. Mm, Eckhart, can you call her back? That was funny, too. And then, of course, Tanya says, Jeff, fuck you, and then hangs up, and he's stewing there with Sean. He's like, she's going to be in Sun Valley skating. Get in the car. 
And then they drive for what was more than a day because they're driving overnight. Sean's sleeping in the back eating potato chips off his bare chest while he's telling Mm -hmm. Jeff about what a ladies' man he is. That was a great sequence, again, by this actor that plays Sean Eckhart. But then, of course, he drives for hours to get to this arena just so he could walk out and say, Tanya, no, fuck you, and then walk out again, right? (laughs) In the right set of circumstances, I could see myself getting worked up enough to do just something so stupid and wasteful as to drive across the country just to yell three words at somebody and then leave. (laughs) You're going to have to watch this movie again one day because I think you're going to like it a lot more if you can get out of your own head. And again, I don't blame you for why you are in your own head about it. But you're pointing out why this movie is so good because that is commitment to a joke. That's a Family Guy level commitment to a joke. Yes. Stu did that once on Family Guy. I think you're right in saying, if I go back in the future and rewatch this, because even talking through the movie, as you're describing things, as I'm asking you about You're liking it more? I'm wondering why I didn't enjoy it more in the moment, because when you take these scenes individually and these performances individually, it's a good movie. You answered it perfectly earlier. I'm not judging at all for the way you said that. I've done that too. I hate these people. I hate this situation so much that I am just watching it with gritted teeth and I want to punch them all in the face so hard. And no matter how good the movie is sometimes, you can't get past that. I thought I was going to do that with the O.J. documentary, Made in America, that won the Oscar several years ago, but it was so good, I got past that pretty fast. I expect it to be like that. If I watched the one they did, the TV movie version, I think John Travolta's in that and all. I forget who else on that <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. I probably would be gritting my teeth. You know one thing about Tanya Harding that I really think stands out having watched this again, though? Like her, hate her, whatever. She was a tiny underdog, five foot one, right? They're all pretty small, but she's five foot one. She has asthma. Can't overlook that. Right. She came from nothing. She always had a tough life. She worked hard in every way, her actual jobs, and then worked hard as a skater. And yet the skating snobs don't want her, but she is the American dream. She isn't part of it. She doesn't want it. Well, she wants it, but she is it. And that's why I brought up Moneyball earlier, because they are also the American dream. Now, that's, and so is this, a competitive sport. You're not going to get something just because you represent something that everyone should strive for. But I love that about Americans so much of the time. I love underdogs, except if I don't love them. And no one really loved Tanya Harding. She was the woman you loved to hate back then. I didn't love her either. But she is what so many people say. Yeah, I should look up to that kind of person. That's what I want to be too, because I'm nobody and I can be somebody. Well, if you ever got anywhere, you'd be Tanya Harding too, you dumb hick. Or you dumb smart person. Dumb smart person? You idiot smart person. Whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. Is that she is the American dream. Yeah. But again, the cynic in me wonders how much the American dream is actually the American dream. I'm a Canadian, so I don't know how much credit I have in saying this. But it strikes me, everything we see in the real world, I'm sure this is more true in 2020 than it was in 1994, is that the American dream is all well and good. But the people that have everything, even a little bit of power, like these figure skating judges or these wealthy families that could pay to have their children have the best coaches, best costumes, best choreographers throughout for their life. Years. For years. Probably 10 or 15 years. They have no interest in the American dream. They have no interest in the underdog making good. You're right. They want to maintain the status quo because the status quo works very well for them. And it doesn't help that Tanya Harding and her upbringing, everything about her situation was slightly abrasive. Not only did she have the detrimental upbringing as far as how she would appear to the judges because she had to make her own costumes and it wasn't all professional and pretty. It was tacky. It was tacky. And she insisted on having like the ZZ Top music, even though that wasn't really what people wanted at the time. Oh, quick thing. I read about this and I looked for the clip. She skated to the end music of Batman, as in the 1989 Batman, where they incorporate the Ode to Joy. I love that music cue in Batman. Danny Elfman's done some good music over the years. That might be the best thing he's ever done, for me at least, certainly one of. 
And she skates that at the end of Batman. I'm not sure this is the perfect skating music, but it's awfully close as far as I'm concerned. So when I saw that, I thought, I never liked this woman very much. But if I had seen that, I might have been more on her side. That wins me points for creativity, 100%. All I'm trying to say is I don't think she did herself any favors necessarily. Oh, hell no. Like you said, she was an underdog from the get-go, and I don't think anybody is necessarily as interested in seeing the underdog succeed as they think they are, at least when it directly affects you. I think if we were watching from afar and you see one of these underdog stories unfolding, you're probably a little bit more apt to say, yeah, go fight the good fight. But when it's happening in your backyard, maybe you're more inclined when you've got that position of some kind of privilege to say, yeah, maybe we just leave things the way they are, eh? I am, again, nodding, and no one can see it, but I am very much nodding at what you're saying. Two white guys nodding about privilege being maintained. (sighs) You're not wrong, though. Depiction of the sport. Well, they use skating doubles, and Margot Robbie, for as good as she is, couldn't do the triple axel, but then a lot of pros. I guess maybe now some pros could do it, but at this point, obviously only Tanya Harding in reality was ever able to do the triple axel. When they shot the movie, what was that, 25 or so years later, then maybe more could. So they had to use visual effects, I think including with the triple axel when she lands it. And then a lot of the time she's not really skating. But it seemed convincing to me. I think they did a hell of a job making it look like Margot Robbie's a world-class skater. So the depiction of the sport looks excellent to me. It convinced me that it was Margot Robbie skating. The one thing I wondered when watching this, and it's only because we've talked about it so often over the course of doing this podcast and talking generally, is this was the early to mid-90s. Well, I guess for her competitive years, it would have been, what, like 89 to 94 probably? So that would have been in sport, baseball, football certainly, bodybuilding certainly, and Olympic sport, I'm convinced, peak steroid use. Don't tell me that there's no use for steroids in figure skating, because like we just talked about, I think strength is one of the key reasons why Tanya Harding was the lone woman in the U.S. able to do the triple axel, because she had that leg strength. So there's benefit to it, certainly. Do you think... She was on the gas... Yeah. Do you think she was juicing to try to get an advantage? And not just her. Do you think it was probably endemic in the sport and it was just yet another thing that she had to find a way to overcome somehow, whether it was to do it herself or not? We've talked about steroids in other podcasts. I didn't know it was going to come up now. I've often sloughed it off and people might say, what's wrong with you? I think one of the reasons why I do, and I don't even care about these people. I wasn't a skating fan. I'm not a skating fan now. But I think if you were to judge people doing steroids and say, well, I don't like that Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire did that. But Ken Griffey Jr. didn't, so I can forgive him. Ken Griffey Jr. in baseball might have been the outlier in that whole era. So if you're going to judge people for doing steroids, you might have to stop watching baseball and football. (laughs) I don't know, everything, probably including ice skating at the Olympics. So yes, to answer your question, they probably all in some way were doing performance-enhancing drugs. It may not have been literally steroids, but something to enhance their performance because they want to get ahead because they're driven. It's all they do. Maybe not so much, actually, amateurs like this because they have to have some kind of life every four years. But... For the most part, it's their obsession. Do you want to be better at it? Here's a pill. Here's a needle that can make you better at that. Oh, I can take that. Either I don't know the rules or I don't care about the rules or I can skirt the rules, so I'll do it. So you ask me that question, I say, if we could know the real truth, if we could be God, I bet you way more people in the history of sports and every single sport have done something that every one of us would do that whole sort of how dare he or how dare she thing. And then you wouldn't be a sports fan anymore if you're going to be that judgmental. So there you go. If I've never answered that question properly about why I forgive the athletes for taking steroids, I think I just did it. Either accept the fact that it's probably true or never watch again. I'm inclined to agree with you. 
I guess this wouldn't be the vehicle to address that question as somebody who's trying to make the Olympics that aspect of training, but I think it's one of those things now, if you're any kind of sport fan, I can't help but wonder. Specifically when it has to do with this kind of story, where it's somebody who's just desperately trying to get to a level based purely on their physical skill, strength, and ability. What has she got to lose? I think she even says that in the well, movie that at one too, point. Yeah. What has she got to lose? And in the end, she would rather go to jail than be barred for life. She says that to the judge. I bet that was real. She'd rather have done the jail mm-hmm. time than to never skate again. And she apparently has skated again, but not really, and certainly never got to be a competitive level skater. And maybe she deserved that, but you take away the thing that she wanted the most. I don't really feel sorry for Pete Rose, but the fact that he can't be in baseball anymore is probably a worse punishment than putting him in jail. That court ruling scene, I wish they had just explained the implication of that a little bit more. I guess she still probably had some competitive years ahead of her. She was 24. Yeah, so 24, you're looking at another Olympics maybe four years from now. How old are you when you're over the hill in figure skating? I don't know, but it's not that old, right? Like 30? Probably 28. 28 <laughs> and 30. certainly by the time you're 32, when you yeah. get into the one after that. So she didn't have a ton of competitive skating left as an amateur athlete in her career. What I wish it had explained is, does this ban mean that she can't seek employment in the ice capades, like they said early on, or something along those lines, right? I wonder that same point as you're saying that. They're not making money, these people are doing all this. Well, they probably are. Endorsements but aside. Literally yeah. and legally, you're not making money. Okay, endorsements maybe. But they're not being paid like the baseball players right. we just talked about. You start making money when you do things like, oh, what are their names? Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer, right. Canadian skaters who won all kinds of medals. And when they won their last gold medal a couple of years ago, I started seeing them do ads on the CBC on a regular basis. And she's a great looking woman, but I started seeing her constantly. And then she started cashing in and good for her. But that's what happens. And then she probably has done some kind of skating. Maybe it's the ice capades. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. That actually make her money. So if Harding was barred from doing that, and I don't know if she was, then that is a harsh thing to do that she can't even earn money at the thing she's best at. Yeah. Maybe she deserved it. But wow, that's hard. It's meant to be harsh, I'm sure. But that's kind of what I assumed had to be the case. Because if it was just, well, Tanya Harding, you can't ever skate in competitive skating. So you can't ever be in the Olympics, for instance. But that doesn't bar you from like Disney on ice or something like that. Mm. At least you still have a career doing what it is you love, even if it's maybe not as glamorous or interesting as maybe what you would actually hope for. It's not the But she end. could do that for decades right. and make money at it. She can't do the Olympics thing for decades like you just said. What about the score factor? We've really not had that many scorable movies lately, but they found a way to make Margot Robbie fairly unattractive, which yes. is not easy because she's one of the best looking women in Hollywood. But this movie is filled with lust, <laughs> especially early on when she and Jeff are at their early peak. I need you phase. <laughs> not really, because it's so interspersed with the domestic violence and all the other emotional yeah, abuse right. of this movie that I was just like, eh. Although I will say 15 year old, not actual 15 year old, but Margot Robbie playing 15 year old Tanya Harding was something spectacular to behold with that hairstyle. Huge braces, amazing (laughs) weird skating outfit, awkward-looking Sebastian Stan trying to score with her at the side of the ice rink. Even though she says, I was skating there six hours a day training. What were you doing at the (laughs) rink just hanging out, trying to pick up 15-year-olds? What's wrong with you? So there's a predator on top of everything else then. Long answer, no scoring at this movie for me, I gotta say. Oh, actually, yeah. As soon as I finished making my point about making her look unattractive and all the lust, I thought, nah, that's true. It's not a lusty movie. As far as the score, I'd give it an 8 out of 10 at least, if not higher, because I was as entertained as I was the first time. Love the soundtrack, if I didn't say that already. As soon as Bev and I got home when we saw it the first time in the theater in 2017, probably 2018, actually, by the time we actually saw it, I downloaded Shooting Star, 
Don't you know that you are a shooting star? That song, Mm -hmm. when she hangs out with him in his car and fixes his car for him. Really good soundtrack in general, but that's a great song. So anyway, for me, 8 out of 10, what about you? I was inclined going into this to say like a 7 out of 10 because I recognize, even if I... It's still a nice score. Objectively, in talking about it, I feel like there's no reason I shouldn't be giving this movie a better score than that. The externalities are affecting it for me. So seven with an asterisk, I think. But I just want to sit here giggling, thinking about some of the stupid things that the Sean Eckhart character was doing yeah, throughout the movie. He's so good. It's one of the most entertaining <laughs> movies we've watched together in 56 episodes now. Although, in two weeks, you're going to be entertained even more than ever, probably. Certainly more than you have been in a long time. Even though these movies don't do that well on our channel, we've done four from this series, which has got to be a record. Because Bev and I have done three Star Wars movies, but this is going to make the fifth Rocky movie. Because in two weeks, I'll put a smile on Chris's face because we're finally going to cover Rocky II. Oof, that is going to be a bloodbath, Ryan. I can feel it right now. Hey, I like the movie. <laughs> First half of that movie, brilliant. Second half of that movie, don't love it too much. But let's save that <sighs> for two weeks from now. It's going to be fun to watch that. And hey, a movie that I own so I can loan it to you, covered in germs and cooties and everything. I also hope that in the days leading up to us recording that podcast that you'll be loosening the vocal cords and really practicing your Rocky. Do I need to practice? <laughs> I don't need to practice nothing. All right. I have been oh, told. Yeah. If I do a good Rocky, I don't need to practice. I just go right into it. Maybe <laughs> I don't do a good Rocky. I don't know. Hey, we're on Twitter, you know. That's he not is bad. at scoring at movies. I am at moviefiend51. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts under Top 100 Project. And you knew that already, fans, because if you didn't, you wouldn't have this podcast on your phone or your device in the first place. And that's it for I, Tanya. Good movie. Take your easy, Olympians. I know that you will be a shooting star. <laughs>